I like to do a song of great social and political import. It goes like this. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing four dollars is trying to find me. Ah, yes, the great Janis Joplin singing the song titled Mercedes Benz from her 1970 record called Pearl. It's this lullaby of sorts, this comedic take on what we ask of from God, these things that we feel we need and want and must have. I love the song. I love her voice. I love what the words of this simple tune evoke uh, in my mind and in my consciousness. And when we hear it, we think, well, it's just sort of silly, but we've all thought these things before, like we need this and that. And it leads us into our theme and focus for today, which is encapsulated in this sermon that I've uh, titled, Buyer's Remorse. And the subtitle here is Owning a Faith. What does it mean? What does it feel like to own your faith? How does faith work, and how does it not work in such a time of great distance and dislocation and this disoriented time that we're all living in, these COVID days? How does faith function in such a time as this? My name is Derek, and welcome to another sermon from an empty room. Today is August the 9th, 2020, in the season of Ordinary Time. And our passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13, 14, and 15. We'll get to that in just a moment, but let's talk first about buyer's remorse. Won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz. Buyer's remorse is that feeling that you have once you've made a purchase, and then you immediately wonder if it was the right decision to make. Now, buyer's remorse is usually tied to these big ticket purchases, like a house or a new car or a vacation home or something like that. But buyer's remorse can, as a principle, venture off into all different areas of our lives. It can find itself in these big-ticket decision-making experiences, like a relationship, a marriage even, the college that you want to go to, and the list is so long. These big-ticket experiences that we put ourselves in, and there's this immediate question as to whether or not we've made the right decision. It also works in the small things, too. For me, it's often the case when I order something off Amazon, which is more frequently during these quarantine times, just little things, a new wallet, that pin, some flip-flops, because if you know me, it's very rare that I wear shoes. You know, just things like that. And I'll order them right off the screen. They'll come to my door, and I'll open the box, 
And you know, sometimes I pull out the product and look at it and touch it, roll it over in my hands and think, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And it ends up in a drawer or it stays on the table or it ends up at Goodwill. So sometimes it's these small things where you're just like, well, I shouldn't really have bought that. For those of you who know me uh, and have heard me talk about our dog that we've had for about 10 years, we purchased this pug about 10 years ago. She's cute. Her name is Yoda. But you know what? She doesn't like us. We feed her. We water her. We pet her. We at least try. We take care of her. But she really, there's some kind of hatred that she has for us. She just barks at us all the time. She doesn't really let you touch her on the head or anywhere. You can't even pet her on the back without her snapping at you or yelling back. I don't know what she's saying, but it sounds something like, I hate you. And you know, over time, it, uh, it becomes mutual. But again, we love her in the way that you should. But there definitely are these moments where I'm staring buyer's remorse right in the eye every day in my home with this dog. But again, buyer's remorse is that feeling you get when you wonder if you've made the right decision on a purchase or some decision that you've made. And faith is certainly one of those things. When it comes to faith, buyer's remorse is that realization, and I want you to listen to this, It's that realization that this thing that we call faith is now yours. It's mine. And there's this sense of being unsure as to whether or not I'm up to the task of taking care of this and curating it and helping it grow. Because faith is not easy. In fact, it's very, very difficult. Now, I want to read this passage to you uh, from Matthew chapter 16. It's a very short scene. Uh, in the life of Jesus, but it's a fantastic scene, and it's one of my favorite little vignettes that we have in the Gospels. Just a few verses here. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's such a great question. Now, Jesus turns to his disciples. I love this scene. And he asks them about what's trending out there about him. He just turns to his students and says, hey, I got a question. What are people saying about me? What's the word on the street? What's trending about my work, my teachings, my behaviors? What are people saying? Uh, Who do people think that I am? And so on. And I just love that the disciples have a response in their pocket. They just immediately said, oh, funny you ask. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They just roll these answers off as though they've already heard these uh, things before. And what it tells me is that Jesus is so distinctive Uh, in his time that he was only thought of as this reincarnated or resurrected presence of these more well-known historical people. So I love that part. But Jesus is more than likely, I would say, disinterested in what the general public has to say about who he is 
or who they imagine him to be. His question is really just a way to get his disciples to voice their own personal beliefs about him. He, he wants to take inventory of his students, like, well, what do you think? What do you say? Now, the New International Version, I think, holds on to the, the Greek and the tone of this text better than other versions. The version I just read to you just says that he turned to them and said, but who do you say that I am? But the NIV has this great uh, way of writing it, and it says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? What about you? It's such a great scene. They knew everyone else's opinion of Jesus. Again, that was in their pocket. But Jesus hands them the question, and he places that question in their hands, and he asks them to wrestle with both the answer to that question and the implications as well. You might say that Jesus is forcing them to come to grips with their own understandings of who he is and to voice what they believe to be true. Now, this is going to sound very simplistic and probably cheesy, but it makes most sense to me, and I hope it makes sense to you. But I've taken these different experiences that we have in the church life, and I've placed them in uh, these categories of how uh, faith goes through these cycles of development. And the three, again, I do apologize for the simplicity of this, but I hope it makes sense. Uh, Faith moves through what I would say a Sunday school faith, a youth group faith, and an adult ministry faith. A Sunday school faith, a youth group faith, and an adult ministry sort of faith. I know it's not the best trio of examples, but just stay with me here. Now, the Sunday school faith, maybe you understand this. Maybe you grew up in a church environment and you went to the old-fashioned kids' Sunday school class. And these are defined by simply, you know, the flannel board, the paper cutouts. If you grew up uh, in the 90s, the late 90s, maybe you learned the lessons via video or something like that. I'm probably dating myself, but maybe there's some McGee and me people out there, if you remember that guy, that cartoon. Uh, But whatever the case is, you sat through Sunday school, and an adult told you the stories of the Bible, and you, as a kid, basically believed what the teacher said. Not a lot of existential questions uh, about stories of the Bible when you're four, five, six, seven years old. You're just listening, you're learning, you're enjoying it. And the Sunday school faith is almost entirely dependent and reliant on the teacher's faith. It's the content coming from uh, the person in charge, the authority, and you are taking it in and you're enjoying it. Or you're not enjoying it, but either way, it doesn't really make a lot of difference to you. The other level is this youth group faith, when people move into this middle school, high school period of their faith and life. And this is that time in life where we're starting to ask larger questions about existence, about God, about faith, about what's my purpose in the world. And a good youth minister and a good, healthy youth group will create uh, these safe environments for inquiry, for uh, wrestling with doubts and skepticism. But I would say that one of the key markers of the youth group faith is that this is that time in our faith where we're beginning to work some things out on our own, but yet also with 
some lifeguarding, some supervision, some community. We're asking questions. We're poking at long-held beliefs. We are wrestling with things that don't make sense to us. We're raising our hands and saying, yes, but I have friends in this other faith system, and they say this. And again, if you grew up in a healthy youth group environment, hopefully you did, uh, that was welcomed, and you could work those things out together. But then there's this third phase of faith, this adult ministry faith. This is when you are on your own. Yes, the church is there. You may be surrounded by Christians in certain uh, environments in your life, but you are also very aware that what you do with your faith is your call. It's your decision. We dropped our son off at college yesterday, and it was, uh, as, as you may know, if you dropped kids off at school or if you were dropped off at college by your parents, it's a weird situation you know, uh, 18 years plus of him living in our homes, and we help him get his stuff in his dorm room, and there's this sense where we're saying in a way, okay, um, swim, and don't drown, and you leave. And when you leave, there's this realization that he's an adult now, you know? If he wants to go to class, that's going to be his decision. If he wants to go to church, that's going to be his decision, Whatever he wants to do with his faith, those are now his decisions. And it's a very scary and yet liberating time. You get to see how it works, you know? And so in the adult ministry faith stage, this is where you are very aware that whatever you do with your faith is your call. doesn't mean you're not surrounded by Christians, but at the end of the day, it's going to be what you and I do with our faith that counts. Now, don't get hung up on the age levels of the Sunday school, youth group, adult ministry examples. Again, I know it's very simplistic and there's lots of holes in it, but I hope you understand that what I'm trying to say is that we cycle through these things all the time. Sometimes we're still in this Sunday school faith where, like, our faith is being carried by those around us. We are uh, dependent on, reliant on our pastors and friends and people who seem to have it together with their faith. And then there are these youth group seasons of faith for us where we are engaged with it and we are questioning some things and we are trying to find our way through the stories and find ourselves in the biblical story. We go through those. We cycle through that throughout life. And then there are these adult ministry times where we feel it's really up to us. If we're going to maintain this thing, if it's going to grow, if it's going to work, it's going to be because we work it. But with his question to his disciples, Jesus was, and he does this to us, he's forcing them to take steps into the adult world of their faith, to own what they believe and to take on all the things that come with ownership of a faith. That's how that works. Now, I will say that COVID or as we say around here in our church office, Novid. COVID is leaving a mark on just about everything. Friendships, families, education, parenting, relationships, work. It's making an impact on people's emotional well-being. I heard a report the other day that 
that Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years. And if that's true, then that's very, very important. It's also having an impact on people's faith and the life of the church. Uh, the most recent research from Barna shows that 33% of people in the local church are already gone. The disengagement has been swift, and it's fast becoming apparent that people are absent. It's having an effect on all parts of life. And this short three-week teaching set that we've called a distant faith, it's our effort to reflect on, well, how does faith work in this kind of world? How does it work in such a dislocated and disoriented time? If you missed last Sunday, I'd recommend catching up through the podcast. But the second week, this reflection that we're having right now uh, is so important because in many ways we have all been pushed out to see and have been told to swim and to see if we can. Faith is something right now that we have to take a hold of, even if we've dropped it along the way. And let me say this as we close. Owning your faith is so often in relationship to disowning your faith. Let me say that again. Owning your faith is so often in relationship with disowning your faith. Many of us move forward from the confines of our church and religious experience carrying around some version of our parents' faith or our pastor's faith or our friend's faith or our spouse's faith. It's not really ours. It's not that we don't necessarily believe it. We might have some questions about it. But at the end of the day, the other people in our lives are carrying the load of whatever faith is supposed to be. And eventually, even though it's been in our hands at some, at some level, we drop it. We fumble it. It falls to the ground, and sometimes it stays there for years. And we drop our faith for all kinds of reasons, reasons of doubt, pain, suffering, betrayal, skepticism. The list is so long. But here's the thing. Dropping your faith, fumbling your faith, might just be a very important part of the believing process. We often think that if we leave our faith behind, then there's no return or that we are just not capable or it's not for us. But I would argue that disbelief is integral to the believing process. And here's why, because if you ever decide to walk back and to pick up this faith that you've left on the ground, to blow the dust off it, to reopen it, to re-engage with it, if that's what you choose to do at some point in the future, it will be you who picks it up. The process of dropping and disowning what we believe and then returning to it some time later, something happens that doesn't happen in any of the other two stages. And what happens is that we, on our own, make the decision to pick up our faith, as broken as it may be, and to re-engage with it and to see what happens in the days to come. I pray that this is encouraging to you. I pray that um, whatever stage you are in, you recognize that. You're able to name it, to know where your place is in this cycle of the believing process. And if you are in a place right now where your faith seems to be on the ground, you need to know that you're not out. You're just on the journey. And part of this journey is leaving the faith behind 
But when you return to it, it will be you who decides to pick it up and to re-engage with it. And in my experience, 25 plus years of working in a church environment, it's those experiences that change the lives of people forever. It'll be okay On the healing day No more gone astray On the healing day Yeah, we'll find our way On the healing day To where the children play On the healing day When the tyrant is bound Healing.